Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That means we depend upon you and your generous gifts and financial contributions in order to continue to bring Fighting for the Faith to you and to the world. If you don't already support us, you can do so by visiting our website, fightingforthefaith.com. When you get there, you can click on one of our two friendly yellow buttons, or you can make your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith and then send it to Post Office Box 13344, Grand Forks, North Dakota, zip code 58208. And thank you for your support. It's time for another edition of Fighting for the Faith. Wednesday, July 15th, 2015. Beware the Ides of July. <laughs> yeah, I think that's why Shakespeare said beware the Ides of March, because the Ides of July just doesn't work. Yes, I know, I'm a nerd. Thank you for tuning in. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. My name is Chris Rosebro. I am your servant in Jesus Christ, and this is the program that dishes up a daily dose of biblical discernment, the goal of which, help you to think biblically, help you to think critically, and help you slow down. Stop. Open up your Bible and compare what people are saying in the name of God to the Word of God. And sadly, sadly, there is no shortage of crazy things being said out there. We take the time to open up our Bibles and fact check, if you would. Fact check like the Bereans to see if what the most popular pastors, preachers, teachers, conference speakers, you know, those put forward by the evangelical industrial complex as those whom we need to be listening to, whose small group Bible studies we need to be implementing in our small groups to see if what they're actually saying squares with what God's word says in context or if, well, they're engaging in the theological and doctrinal innovating, yeah, which is spoken against in really strong words in the Bible. In fact, what we're going to be talking about on today's episode of Fighting for the Faith, this is our light episode this week. Uh, we ha Once a week we do a light episode. We shoot for Wednesdays. Um, sometimes we don't always make it on Wednesdays. kind of depends on the fluctuations of my schedule but uh, we shoot for wednesdays it's not that the uh, the uh, topic is light it's that we're doing a singular topic oftentimes a lecture or a lesson and we're not going to be doing roseboro's ramblings through genesis today i took a little bit of liberty and uh, got away from genesis and decided to do a little lesson on the book or the epistle of jude and so today's episode will be roseboro's ramblings on the epistle of jude and so why don't we just go ahead and get right to it? Here is our one-off. There's no there's no episodes in the series. This there's no series. This is a one episode series of Roseboro's ramblings on the Epistle of Jude. Here we go. We will pray and we will get started. And we're gonna we're not gonna be in Genesis today. I wanna do a lesson that kind of folds in with the sermon, if you would. If that's okay. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, as we open up your word and take a look at the book of Jude and the warnings that you have given us through your half-brother regarding the faith and those who have crept in among us, open our eyes so that we may see the truth, stand firm and steadfast in the faith, and boldly proclaim, even in the face of persecution, that you are Jesus, Lord of lords, King of kings, who has come and bled and died for us and calls all sinners to repent and to be forgiven. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, we're going to go on a bunny trail. We're not going to do Genesis today, and uh, we're going to do something different. If you have your Bible, please open to the book of Jude. If you ask me which chapter, I will laugh at you. Tiny epistle, very important one, and we are going to work our way through this. I think we can get most of it done today. Maybe not. We'll see. Here's what it says. Jude, a servant of Jesus Christ and brother of James. Now, I'm going to point something out here. Jude is the half-brother of Jesus. And notice that he does not bring that credential out. He makes it clear that he's the brother of James. And everybody knows that James and Jude are the half-brothers of Jesus. But he, in this letter, does not throw that card 
which tells you something about the fact that he does not consider himself worthy to be named as the brother of Jesus in that sense. Yep. That all of the apostles are on the same level we are. Everybody comes into the kingdom of Christ on their knees. And we all stand on our knees. Sinners forgiven. To those who are called, beloved in God, the Father, and kept for Jesus Christ, may mercy, peace, and love be multiplied to you. Now watch what he does. Beloved, although I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation, I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith which was once for all delivered to the saints. Contend, fight for the faith. For, here's the reason, for certain people have crept in unnoticed who long ago were designated for this condemnation. They are ungodly people who pervert the grace of our Lord God into sensuality and deny our only Master and Lord Jesus Christ. So notice, he's got, I would love to tell you about our common faith, have a little koinonia with you. But here's the problem. There's people who've crept into our congregations unnoticed, and they have turned the grace of Christ into a license for sensuality. And he is admonishing them to do what? To contend for the faith. In other words, when there's false teachers who are preaching a false gospel, it's a five-alarm fire. Nobody gets to sit out. Everyone has to jump in and do something about this. Now, I want to remind you, although you once fully knew it, that Jesus, who saved a people out of the land of Egypt, afterward destroyed those who did not believe. Now, NIV, real quick. It doesn't say Jesus. What does it say? What's it say in the NIV? Say it. It says the Lord. And this is a wonderful thing about textual criticism. A little bit of a note here. Textual criticism is the study of all of the different manuscripts that we have from the New Testament as well as Old Testament, although Old Testament textual criticism is a little bit behind academically. New Testament textual criticism is a very important field of study. And it turns out we have literally thousands, thousands of fragments, manuscripts, papyri, copies of the New Testament, some of them dating back way old. And this particular change that's in the ESV, and you can see it. Now, I want to remind you that you once fully knew it, that Jesus who saved a people out of the land of Egypt, there's a reason why the ESV says Jesus and the NIV says Lord. And the reason is simple, because when the NIV 1984 was put together, we didn't have the manuscript that we're basing this on. It wasn't in our possession, and they've since found a very old papyri. I mean, really old. Uh, And it includes the Pauline epistles and Jude. And it doesn't say Lord, it says Jesus. I forget the date, but if you you email me, I can actually look it up. I, I have it on my computer somewhere, and I read this a while back. But I was very excited about this change. And there's a reason why. Because Lord is soft, Jesus is very specific. And if the earliest manuscripts in the original actually say Jesus, it makes a big difference. Um, This is just mind-bogglingly important for Old Testament studies because Jesus is the one who saved a people out of the land of Egypt, Jude says. Yes. Yeah, right? (laughs) Sorry. The Old Testament was written by God. Yes, it is. And who is Jesus? Uh Aha. Yes, but what does that mean? What does it mean when we say Jesus is the Son of God? Let me show you a passage of Scripture real quick. We say in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, right? Now, how many gods are there? One. And the one God consists of how many persons? Three. Three. Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Is the Father God? The Holy Spirit is also God. He is a person of the Trinity. And the Son himself is God as well. I'm going to show you a passage of Scripture. It's John chapter 5, and, I'll fi- and I've got to get the specific address real quick here. All right, here it is. All right, let me, I'll, I'll give you a little bit of context. It's John chapter 5, and Jesus heals a guy. And here, I'll start at uh, halfway through verse 9. Now, the day... 
That day was the Sabbath. So the Jews said to the man who had been healed, It is the Sabbath. It is not lawful for you to take up your bed. Jesus had healed a guy and told him to take up his mat. And so he's taking up his mat and he's leaving. And uh, he answered, Well, the man who healed me, that is the man who said to me, Take up your bed and walk. So they asked him, Who is this man who said to you, Take up your bed and walk? Now the man who had been healed did not know that who it was, for Jesus had withdrawn, as there was a crowd in the place. Afterward, Jesus found him in the temple and said to him, See, you are well. Sin no more, that nothing worse may happen to you. So the man went away and told Jesus, uh, told the Jews that it was Jesus who had healed him. And this was why the Jews were persecuting Jesus, because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. But Jesus answered them. Here's what Jesus says. My father is working until now, and I am working. And this is why the Jews were seeking to kill, uh, seeking all the more to kill him, because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. So when we say Jesus is the son of God, understand this, we're talking about son by nature. Okay, And what do we confess in the Nicene Creed? That Jesus is God of God, light of light, very God of very God, begotten, not made, being of one substance with the Father. So the Catholic faith, small c, not Roman Catholic, the Catholic faith has confessed and always confessed that there is one God, three persons. So the Father is God, the Holy Spirit is God, the Son is God. And there are not three gods, there's only one God. Uh So that's the Trinity. So, and, you know, when Jesus said, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing and teaching them, right? He baptizing them in the name, Hanamas, singular, of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So the one name, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, even though there's three, there's only one. Does that answer your question? Okay. So, yes. Go on with that. There's also a passage I don't believe that says, when you grieve the Holy Spirit, you grieve God. Yes. Yes, and I'll, I can give you the, the address on that one. I think it is either Acts 5 or Acts 6. It's the story of Ananias and Sapphira. Let's find that real quick. Yep, here it is. I'll, tell, I'll read the story so that we get the context. And this one specifically states that the Holy Spirit is God. Now, a man named Ananias and his wife Sapphira sold a piece of property and his... And with his wife's knowledge, he kept back for himself some of the proceeds and brought only a part of it and laid it at the apostles' feet. Which, by the way, is not a bad thing. The problem is, is that he was putting on a pretense that they had, they had sold this property and gave 100% of the proceeds to the apostolic uh, ministry. Okay, and so, but they didn't. It wasn't, a, rather than saying, we're going to give you 60%, and everyone said, praise the Lord, we're, we're giving you 100%. Got that? Sapphira, wink, wink, nudge, nudge, right? (laughs) But Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan so filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back for yourself part of the proceeds of the land? While it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, was it not at your disposal? Why is it that you have contrived this deed in your heart? You have not lied to man, but to God. So notice, he lied to the Holy Spirit, and here Peter says, and because of this you've lied to God. Same, same being, right? And so, so the idea here is, is that Scripture reveals that Jesus is none other than God the Son in human flesh. He's not the Holy Spirit in human flesh, nor is he the Father in human flesh, because who does Jesus pray to in the Garden of Gethsemane, right? To his Father, right? He's not praying to himself. So there's one God, three persons. Let's go back to Jude. Verse 5. I want to remind you, although you once fully knew it, that Jesus, who saved a people out of the land of Egypt, afterward destroyed those who did not believe. Again, I always like to say this, and I'll point this out. This gets rid of the whole myth of precious moments, Jesus. You know what I'm saying? Okay. I, I just don't understand the whole precious moments thing. It doesn't make any sense. It's about as appealing as My Little Pony. Okay. You know, this glitzy, girly-fied type of, you know, Jesus. He was not. Jesus is God in human flesh, and he was the one who judged the children of Israel for their unbelief. He was the one behind this. This is what Jude reveals. 
And the angels who did not stay with their own position of authority, but left their proper dwelling, he has kept in eternal chains under gloomy darkness until the judgment of the great day. Verse 7, just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding cities, which likewise indulged in sexual immorality and pursued unnatural desire, any question as to what that means? Serve as an example by going and undergoing a punishment of eternal fire. Yet, in like manner, these people. So, notice the the comparison. Here, Jude is comparing these false teachers who've crept in among us, who've turned the grace of Christ into a license for sensuality. He's comparing them to well, the people in Egypt who grumbled and didn't believe God, or the children of Israel in the wilderness who had been freed from Egypt, those and they died in the wilderness. He's compared them to the fallen angels, and he's now compared them to Sodom and Gomorrah. These are not politically correct, flattering comparisons. I guarantee you, I guarantee you if I were to compare any of you to Sodom and Gomorrah, the church council would have words with me. But that's exactly who Jude is comparing these false teachers to. And there's a reason for that. Each and every one of these examples are people or groups who've undergone God's visible judgment for their rebellion against God. So yet, in like manner, these people, these false teachers, relying on their dreams. Notice it doesn't say relying on the Word of God. Relying on their dreams... They defile the flesh, reject authority, blaspheme the glorious ones. Take a look at the broader spectrum of visible Christianity on television. What's the primary message you're hearing from the most popular pastors and preachers right now? Oh, I've had a dream. I've had a revelation. God is for you. He's not against you. He has a destiny for for you to fulfill. And all you need to do is ask God or apply these principles or send me money. And then God will reveal to you the dream, the destiny. Don't give up on the destiny that God has called you to. Dream a dream and God is going to be upset with you if it's a small dream. Make sure that you show your faith by making it a huge, ginormous, God-sized dream. Have any of you heard messages like this? So if now, you, now you're warned. Consider this like a flu shot. Okay. okay. Well, you just got one. This was a spiritual flu shot. Jude's helping you out here. So they rely on their dreams, defile the flesh, reject authority. That's kind of an important piece right there. We've all heard of the great apostasy, which, by the way, there's nothing great about the great apostasy. Just trust me on that one. Okay, but we talk about the great apostasy. What does, you remember, anyone here remember what the word apostasia means? It means rebellion. It means rebellion. The great rebellion. And the thing is, is that the great apostasy is not the thing that takes place in the world. Because the world... everybody's born dead in trespasses and sins and under the dominion of darkness. So you know what people born dead in trespasses and sins in the dominion of darkness do? You know, those things. (laughs) Right? We don't expect them to bear the fruit of repentance and, and things like that in their lives at all. But the rebellion takes place in the visible church. That's where the rebellion takes place. So they reject authority, blaspheme the glorious ones, But when the archangel Michael, contending with the devil, was disputing about the body of Moses, he did not presume to pronounce a blasphemous judgment, but said, The Lord rebuke you. But these people, these false teachers, they blaspheme all that they do not understand. They are destroyed by all that they, like unreasoning animals, understand instinctively. So we know this. these, These are people who are dreaming dreams. Right? And this is not is this not what we read when I read out part of Jeremiah twenty three. Do not listen to these, the dreams of these people, these false prophets. I did not send them. You know, you, you, here's kind of the simple thing. When you're dealing with false prophets and false teachers, it's always super simple to stop to spot the false teacher. A true teacher always points you to Christ and calls you to repent and to be forgiven. 
a false teacher points you either to himself or has you basically say, I can be like the, that teacher if I do X, Y, or Z things. False teachers always lead people astray to follow after them. True teachers really sent by Christ, they point you to Jesus, not themselves, call you to repent and to be forgiven, and always are placarding Christ in his saving office. False teachers, they're always placarding themselves and saying, I'm the example. I figured it out. I know how you can do this. You want to get on, on God's good, good side? I've got a program. I figured it out. You know, I've got these five easy principles. And if you send me a seat offering of $595, okay, in honor of Isaiah 59 verse 5, then then I can give you that secret too, and you can be just like me. That's how they talk. So woe to them. So they, they follow their instincts, and, and here's the woe. Woe to them, for they walk in the way of Cain and abandon themselves for the sake of gain to Balaam's error and perished in Korah's rebellion. Key thing here. False teachers that Jude is warning about, warning about, they fall into three kind of categories, if you would. Cain, Balaam, and Korah. Not all of them at the same time necessarily, but these three characters from the Bible kind of represent big block, if you would, errors in ways in spotting a false teacher. Now, what was Cain's false doctrine? What was that? Yes, he did. And there's a reason why he murdered his brother. But if you remember the story, you know, they, they go and they offer sacrifices to God. Abel offers the, the fatty portions of lambs, the best of his flock that he sacrificed. Cain offers the first fruits from the ground. Abel's a shepherd. Cain is a, he's a farmer. And there's, by the way, there's no qualitative reason why an offering of first fruits would be bad. What does Scripture reveal was the problem with Cain? He didn't have faith. We know this from the book of Hebrews, chapter 11. He did not have faith. So Cain kind of falls into the big block category, if you would, of like ritualism, going through the motions, doing the religious mumbo-jumbo but not having faith in Christ. Yeah, it's, it's a dead traditionalism because everybody has traditions. But see, the thing is, is that you're not on a, you, you don't earn a right standing before God because you cross yourself, light a candle, come up and, and have the Lord's Supper or anything like that. If you don't have faith, those, those things that we do, they won't save you. They don't make you right before God. And it's possible then, though, on the, on the opposite side of it, for somebody who has faith, for those things to have great benefit and value to their faith. They're done in faith. Does that make sense? Okay, so you have to make a distinction. There's a distinction between true traditions that are edifying to the faith and somebody who just goes through the motions and expects that somehow by doing that, that, that creates a right standing before God. Does that make sense? Next to, Balaam is the next. Fun story, by the way. Numbers 22. Let's go there. Now, so that you kind of get a little bit of the setup here. In Numbers 22, the children of Israel are still in the wilderness. They're heading towards the promised land. They're getting ready to pass through, you know, through Moab. And the king of Moab is not thrilled with this one bit. And the character we're going to look at, his name is Balaam. He's not an Israelite in, this, in the sense that he's not really a true believer. Think of him, if you would, as Miracle Max. This is a guy who's got spells, potions, divinations, things like that. And he's a prophet for hire. You, you want somebody dead? You go and you pay Balaam, and he'll, he'll cast a curse on that person. You, you want somebody to do well? You need, you, know, you need your crops to be successful this year? You go to Balaam, and you pay him money, and he will pray a blessing over your crops. And it doesn't matter the name of the God. He kind of acknowledges them all. You know, he, you know, we've got a page for Yahweh, we've got a page for Molech, we've got a page for Asherah, we've got a page for Baal. It doesn't matter if it's Osiris or whatever. And he'll, he'll dress the part 
in order to make sure that all of his customers' spiritual needs are satisfied. Does that make sense? And just so you know, I'll kind of spoiler alert, the children of Israel end up killing the guy for good reasons. But, you know, they don't recognize him as one of their own. But we come to the story, and so this is now kind of broad category number two of the false teacher, if you would. The people of Israel set out and camped in the plains of Moab beyond the Jordan at Jericho. And Balak, the son of Zippor, saw all that Israel had done to the Amorites. And Moab was in great dread of the people because they were many. Moab was overcome with fear of the people of Israel. And Moab said to the elders of Midian, This horde will now lick up all that is around us as the ox licks up the grass of the field. So Balak, the son of Zippor, who was king of Moab at the time, sent messengers to Balaam, and that would be Balaam, the son of Beor, at Pethor, which is near the river in the land of the people of Ammah. And to call him, saying, Behold, a people has come out of Egypt. They cover the face of the earth. They are dwelling opposite me. Come now, curse this people for me, since they are too mighty for me. Perhaps I shall be able to defeat them and drive them from the land. For I know that he whom you bless is blessed, and he whom you curse is cursed. Prophet for hire. (laughs) Right? So... The elders of Moab. Now, you got to fill you in here. Elders are like mid-level managers. They're not the most impressive. Okay? So the first, you know, entourage, if you would, he sends out the mid-level managers. I mean, granted, they're not your ordinary, you know, plebeians. I mean, they're, they're, they're the middle-class dudes, right? So the elders of Moab and the elders of Midian departed with the fees for divination in their hand. And they came to Balaam and said, and gave him Balak's message. And he said to them, lodge here tonight, and I will bring back word to you as Yahweh speaks to me. Okay, so he knows that, the, all right, so the God I got to be calling up, I got to call up Yahweh. Let's see, Let me just dial him up. So he, he, t- he decides to dial up Yahweh. Now, keep him t- you know, he's, he's on speaking terms, apparently, with all kinds of deities, right? So he's going to have a chat with Yahweh. And here's the funny part, verse 9. And then God came to Balaam and said to him, Who are these men with you? And Balaam said to God, Balak, the son of Zippor, king of Moab, has sent me to say, <laughs> saying, Behold, the people has come out of Egypt, and it covers the face of the earth. So he actually dials up God, and lo and behold, there's somebody on the other line. Okay, whoa, I got a live one here. Okay, so behold, a people has come out of Egypt. It covers the face of the earth. Now come curse them for me. Perhaps I shall be able to fight against them and drive them out. God said to Balaam, you shall not go with them. You shall not curse the people. They are blessed. And then the line goes dead. Oh boy. All right. So Balaam rose in the morning and said to the princes of Balak, Go to your own land, for the Lord has refused to let me go with you. So the princes of Moab rose and went to Balak and said, Balaam refuses to come with us. You know how they interpret this? Okay, basic, Balaam is saying, Oh, man, I just lost a paying gig. These people were willing to pay me, and I, God answered when I dialed the number, and I can't go with them. And they, the people of Moab, they see this as, oh, we need to up the ante. He wants more money. So once again, Balak sent princes more in number and more honorable than these. And they came to Balaam and said to him, thus says Balak, the son of Zippor, let nothing hinder you from coming to me, for I will surely do to you, do you great honor. And whatever you say to me, I will do. Come curse this people for me. But Balaam answered and said to the servants of Balak, though Balak were to give me his house full of silver and gold. By the way, they think that this is a negotiation tactic. They think this is a negotiation that's going on here. And he's being serious. (laughs) Okay, I could not go beyond the command of Yahweh, my God, or do less or more. So apparently this thing has shooken him up enough to where he's going, okay, Yahweh is my God. And I listen, I don't care if you guys give me everything you have. I still can't go with you. You don't understand what that conversation was like, right? So you two, please stay here tonight that I may know what more Yahweh will say to me. And God came to Balaam at night and said, 
If the men have come to call you, rise, go with them. But only do what I tell you. Now, this is going to seem like a little bit of a contradiction. Understand this. God is not thrilled at all with Balaam. He's really upset with this guy. And he's giving him very specific commands. And what Jesus is going to do next does not contradict that. It actually kind of tells us more about Balaam's error. So Balaam rose in the morning, saddled his donkey, and went with the princes of Moab. But God's anger was kindled because he went and the angel of the Lord took his stand in the way. Angel of the Lord, code talk for Jesus. So the angel of the Lord took his stand in the way and his ad, as his adversary. Now, he was riding on the donkey and his two servants were with him. And the donkey saw the angel of the Lord standing in the road with a drawn sword on cue, perfect, in his hand. And the donkey turned aside out of the road and went into the field. And Balaam struck the donkey to turn her into the road. The donkey knows what's going on. Balaam, not so much, right? <laughs> All right, so then the angel of the Lord stood in a narrow path between the vineyards with a wall on either side. And when the donkey saw the angel of the Lord, she pushed against the wall and pressed Balaam's foot against the wall. That had to hurt. So he struck the donkey again. And then the angel of the Lord went ahead and stood in the narrow place where there was no way to turn either to the right or to the left. And when the donkey saw the angel of the Lord, she lay down under Balaam. Okay, smart donkey. She's trying to save Balaam. And Balaam's anger was kindled and he struck the donkey with his staff. So then Yahweh opened the mouth of the donkey and the donkey said to Balaam, what have I done to you that you've struck me these three times? And Balaam said, wait a second, donkeys don't talk. That's not what he said. Yeah. And he said, he answers the donkey. That's right. Balaam says, because you have made a fool of me, I wish I had a sword in my hand, for then I would kill you. So then the donkey, the only one who has any sense, said to Balaam, am I not your donkey on which you have ridden all your life long to this day? Is it my habit to treat you this way? And he said, No. So then the Lord opened the eyes of Balaam, and he saw the angel of the Lord standing in the way with his drawn sword in his hand, and he bowed down and fell on his face. And the angel of the Lord said to him, Why have you struck your donkey these three times? You think God cares about how you treat animals? Oh, yes, he does. Why have you struck your donkey these three times? Behold, I've come out to oppose you because your way is perverse before me. The donkey saw me and turned aside before me these three times. If she had not turned aside from me, surely just now I would have killed you and let her live. Then Balaam said to the angel, Lord, I have sinned. I did not know that you stood in the road against me. Now, therefore, if it is evil in your, if it is evil in your sight, I will turn back. And the angel of the Lord said to Balaam, go with the men, but speak only the word that I tell you. So Balaam went with the princes of Balak. So here's the idea. Now, Jude gives us three categories of false teacher. Cain, dead traditionalism. Just go through the motions, have no faith. Balaam, teaching for shameful gain, the things he ought not to teach. This is a guy whose way is perverse before the Lord. It's all about the money and the spiritual whatever and God ends up basically boxing this guy in. And he, in a sense, becomes a prophet. He becomes an Old Testament prophet because what God spoke through him gets recorded in Scripture. But he's later killed, punished with a death sentence by the children of Israel for his sorcery. Which is really what he is. All right, we're going to pause right there, pay some bills. If you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so. My email address is talkbackatfightingforthefaith.com, or you can subscribe on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash Christian. Follow me on Twitter, my name there, at Christian. Quick break. When we come back, the balance of today's Roseboro's ramblings on the Epistle of Jude. Stay tuned. Don't want to miss it. We will be right back. We don't need to rethink Christianity. We need to rediscover it. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. You're listening to Pirate Christian Radio. We'll be taking your false doctrine now. <laughs>
Names are. Welcome, George Hayworth and Raymond Stewart. Whoa, dude, your GPS knows like who's getting in the car and stuff. Yeah, you know it's like the newest model. My dad works for some big technology company called Cyberdyne, and you know he gave it to me as a birthday gift. But man, it's so smart. It's like really creepy. Huh. Okay, man, this it's cool. I guess we're going over to Luke's house then. Yeah. Hey, GPS. What can I do for you? Could you like plot our route to Luke's house? Plotting route to Luke's house. There is an accident on the I-95 freeway, approximately 10 miles from your current location. Do you wish to take the side streets? Well, I guess we're gonna have to. Yeah, go ahead and take the side streets. Recalculating. And we're on our way, dude. In 300 feet, make a left turn. So, Ray, what'd you think about the sermon last Sunday? Yeah, I thought it was okay, I guess. Okay? Dude, it, like, totally changed my life. What do you mean, bro? In half a mile, make a right turn. Well, I was meditating on the whole Jesus died for me thing, and then I realized that by doing that, Jesus was saying to me, Dude. You are so worth it. Yeah, I know that, man. Yeah, but it's even better than that. Really, man? Like, how so? Well, think about it. Not only does Jesus' death prove that I was worth it, well, that also means that I have some ridiculously important dream destiny that I'm supposed to fulfill. Well, how do you figure? Well, Jesus is the Son of God, right? Right. Well, that means it wasn't some third-rate angel that died for me, right? Yeah, you're right. Turn right in 500 feet. Fact. Jesus, he's like the most important dude in the whole universe. And if Jesus is the most important dude in the whole universe, well, he wouldn't waste his time dying for a nobody. So, the way I figure, that means I must really be a somebody. And that means that the reason why Jesus died for me is so that I can accomplish some ridiculously important destiny. I mean, after all, important people don't waste their time dying for unimportant people. Make a right turn in 50 feet. All right, dude, I think I'm tracking with you now. So I'm thinking, I've got like some uber cosmic destiny that I've got to achieve. I bet there's some planet on the other side of the galaxy that I'm the one that's supposed to save it. You've just missed the turn. Recalculating. So that make you like Luke Skywalker or something? Not even. I mean, I've got to be way more important than Luke Skywalker. In 500 feet, please make an illegal U-turn. So you're like Yoda. Don't insult my greatness, dude. Remember, the Son of God died for me. Whoa, 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 dude. Like, who would be greater than Yoda? I feel like I'm being ignored. The Force itself. Dude, you think you're as important as the Force? That would make you, like, God. Now you're finally starting to see the light, dude. You morons. You are both wrong. You are both sinners who truly deserve death and hell. You're not God. You're not the Force. You're not Yoda. And you're certainly not Luke Skywalker. You're just two guys who are ten feet from the edge of a very treacherous cliff. Oh, uh, well I guess if I was a god I would have seen this coming. Now you're finally starting to see the light. Too soon?
This is Dr. Curtis Lyons. I am the presiding pastor of the American Association of Lutheran Churches. If you are seeking a church that believes that the Holy Bible is the inerrant, infallible Word of God and accepts the Lutheran confessions because they are the right interpretation of Holy Scripture, I hope that you will take a look at the AALC. Also, if you are considering a vocation as a Lutheran pastor, our seminary has a residency program and a program available online. This is Curtis Lyons inviting you to take a look at the AALC. Check us out at taalc.org or on Facebook at the American Association of Lutheran Churches. Hi, Chris Rosebro here to talk about our longtime featured advertiser, Cheapo Air. Doesn't matter if you're traveling for business reasons or for pleasure. Doesn't matter if you're traveling within the United States or abroad. Cheapo Air is the place for you to save literally hundreds of dollars on your airfare, hotel rooms, and rental cars. Visit our website, fightingforthefaith.com. On the side of our website, you'll see our ad banners. Look at the ad banner for Cheapo Air and look on it. There's a promo code. Write the promo code down, click on the ad banner, and then book your travel at the Cheapo Air website, and you'll have the opportunity to enter that promo code for additional savings. Again, fightingforthefaith.com. Write down the promo code, click on the ad banner, and save money on your airfare, hotel rooms, and rental cars today. Morning. Listening to Fighting for the Faith could cause you to think that there are false teachers out there and that not, not everybody who claims to be a Christian teacher is, well, that. Just a reminder, Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That means we depend upon you, your generous gifts, and financial contributions in order to continue to bring Fighting for the Faith to you into the world. And you can partner with us by visiting our website, fightingforthefaith.com. When you get there, you'll see our two friendly yellow buttons. One says donate, the other says join our crew. When you join our crew, you're signing up to automatically contribute $8.95 every month. That's it, to the ongoing work and mission of Fighting for the Faith and Pirate Christian Radio. It's a great way to support us. Of course, if you would like to specify the amount that you would like to contribute, you could do so by clicking on the donate button, or you can make your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith and send it to Post Office Box 13344, Grand Forks, North Dakota. Zip code 58208, and let me thank you for your support because we truly cannot do what we are doing here without it. All right, here is the balance of today's Roseboro's ramblings through the epistle of Jude. Here we go. Third category is in Numbers 16, and it is the story of Korah and his rebellion against God. And this is a little bit more difficult to get unless you first and foremost understand that God has instituted the church and there's offices within the church. And even some of those offices kind of go all the way back to Moses. And so Moses is filling an office, an office of prophet in the time of um, the children of Israel. And so this is a, an, a, if you would, a rebellion against God's instituted offices and the office holders. Does that make sense? We'll, we'll look at the rebellion. Korah, the son of Izhar, son of Kohath, son of Levi, and Dathan and Abiram, the sons of Eliab, and On, the son of Peleth, sons of Reuben, took men. They rose up before Moses with a number of the people of Israel, 250 chiefs of the congregation chosen from the assembly, well-known men. Now, so this rebellion has got some clout. We're talking about the biggest names, the biggest clans in one of the most important tribes of Israel. This, this is not, you know, it's the opposite of Gideon. You familiar with the story of Gideon? Gideon is like from the least clan, you know, from the most obscure region, the smallest and most obscure. This is the opposite. The biggest names... Their elders have gotten together, not one, 250 of them, 
And it's time to say enough is enough with this Moses guy. They assembled themselves together against Moses and against Aaron and said to them, You have gone too far. For all in the congregation are holy, every one of them, and the Lord is among them. Why then do you exalt yourselves above the assembly of the Lord? And to which everybody said, Ufta. Do you see what's happening here? Who called Moses? God. When God called Moses, did Moses jump at the chance? Not at all. What did he say? Send someone else. I can't speak to Pharaoh. I stutter. So is Moses a haughty man who exalts himself over other people? Nope. Not at all. And in the, So who is the one who established him? God did. Yahweh called him. And because of Moses' trepidation and unwillingness, Aaron gets looped into this as well, right? So it's the two of them. And God is the one who's called them. God is the one who's given them a message. God is the one who's given them a mission. And they are doing what God has called them to do. Sure, they're the point guys, but God's the one doing the work, if you would. I mean, yeah, Moses held up the staff at the Red Sea, but who parted the water? So notice what's going on here. There's a false understanding that somehow Moses has gotten all hoity-toity and hotty-totty and thinks that he's, you know, next to the best thing since sliced bread, and that somehow in his office he's exalted himself over everybody else. That's not true at all. Now, I've experienced a small measure of this in the sense that I'm a pastor in the pastoral office and I'm a servant of this congregation. But people mistake that, that I'm in this office or how I think about this office as if I'm somehow exalting myself over everybody else. I'm not the one who made me a pastor. God made me a pastor. I'm filling an office and there's duties and responsibilities and, that go along with that office. So it's, it's similar in that way. But see, the thing is, the way we think as sinners, we get this backwards oftentimes. And so when somebody's truly acting in an office that God has put them into and are speaking the words of God, we mistakenly think that dude thinks he's really it on a stick. And he isn't. So you've gone too far. All the congregation, they're holy, every one of them. And the Lord is among them. This is what... He, Where did he get this idea from? It's his instincts, right? Why then do you exalt yourself above the assembly of the Lord? And when Moses heard this, he fell on his face. Get out of the way. The lightning might start striking. So he fell on his face and he said to Korah and all of his company, In the morning the Lord will show who is his and who is holy and will bring him near to him. The one whom he, the Lord, chooses, he will bring near to him. Do this. Take censers, Korah and all of his company, put fire in them and put incense on them before the Lord tomorrow. And the man whom the Lord chooses shall be the Holy One. You have gone too far, you sons of Levi. And Moses said to Korah, Hear now, you sons of Levi. Is it too small of a thing for you that God, the God of Israel has separated you from, this, from the congregation of Israel to bring you near to himself to do service in the tabernacle of the Lord and to stand before the congregation to minister to them and that he has brought you near him and all your brothers, the sons of Levi, with you. And would you seek the priesthood also? Therefore, it is against the Lord that you and all your company have gathered. What is Aaron that you grumble against him? So notice here, Moses' appeal is like, dude, you don't know what you're talking about. Aaron's nobody. I'm nobody. We're just the guys that God called. And by opposing us, you're opposing God. So that's the idea. They're opposing God because they're opposing the men whom God has put in those offices. God works through means. This is not the Wild West. So Moses sent to call Dathan and Abiram, the sons of Eliab, and they said, We will not come up. Is it a small thing that you have brought us up out of a land flowing with milk and honey? to kill us in the wilderness, that you must also make yourself a prince over us. These guys have got this totally backwards. I mean, 
Really, Egypt is the land flowing with milk and honey. Really? That's the land of slavery. And really, Moses is making himself a prince over you? Are you nuts? But this is what sin does. Sin, I I liken it to brain damage sometimes. It causes you to think black is white and white is black. It causes you to think up is down and down is up, that right is wrong and wrong is right. They are so steeped in sin and unbelief that they're interpreting everything that they're seeing completely the opposite of what reality is. That's what our sin does to us. And this is not going to go well for them. And what did Jude tell us about who's the one who's going to execute judgment in this? It's Jesus. Is it not enough that you have brought us up out of a land flowing with milk and honey to kill us in the wilderness that you must now make yourself a prince over us? Moreover, have not, you have not brought us into a land flowing with milk and honey, nor given us inheritance of fields and vineyards. Will you put out the eyes of these men? We will not come up. Moses was very angry. And the Lord said, Do not respect their offering. I have not taken one donkey from them. I have not harmed one of them. Moses said to Korah, Be present, you and all of your company, before the Lord, you and they, and Aaron, tomorrow. And they let every one of you take his censer, put incense in it or on it, and every one of you bring before the Lord his censer. 250 censers, you also, and Aaron each his censer. So every man took a censer, put fire in them, and laid incense on them, and stood at the entrance of the tent of meeting with Moses and Aaron. Then Korah assembled all the congregation against them at the entrance of the tent of meeting, and the glory of the Lord appeared to all of the congregation. And the Lord spoke to Moses and to Aaron, saying, Separate yourselves from among this congregation, that I might consume them in a moment." And they fell on their faces and said, O God, the God of the spirits of all flesh, shall one man sin and will you be angry with all the congregation? And the Lord spoke to Moses saying, Say to the congregation, Get away from the dwelling of Korah, Dathan, and Abiram. At this point, you can just imagine just how terrified these dudes are. Then Moses rose, went to Dathan and Abiram, and the elders of Israel followed him, and he spoke to the congregation, saying, Depart, please, from the tents of these wicked men, and touch nothing of theirs, lest you be swept away with all of their sins. So they got away from the dwelling of Korah, Dathan, and Abiram. And Dathan and Abiram came out and stood at the door of their tents, together with their wives and sons and their little ones. And Moses said, Hereby you shall know that the Lord has sent me to do all these works, and that it has not been of my own accord." If these men die as all men die, or if they are visited by a fate of all mankind, then the Lord has not sent me. But if the Lord creates something new, and the ground opens its mouth and swallows them up with all that belongs to them, and they go down alive into Sheol, then you shall know that these men have despised the Lord. And as soon as he had finished speaking all these words, the ground under them split apart, And the earth opened its mouth and swallowed them up with their households and all the people who belonged to Korah and their goods. So they and all that belonged to them went down alive into Sheol, and the earth closed over them, and they perished from the midst of the assembly, and all of Israel who were around them fled at their cry, for they said, Lest the earth swallow us up. And fire came out from the Lord and consumed the 250 men offering the incense. And the Lord spoke to Moses and saying, Tell Eliezer the son of Aaron the priest to take up the censers out of the blaze, then scatter the fire far and wide, for they have become holy. As for the censers of these men who have sinned at the cost of their lives, let them be made into hammered plates as a covering for the altar, for they offered them before the Lord, and they became holy. Thus they shall be assigned to the people of Israel. So, think of it this way. Three categories of false teacher. Dead ritualists. Those who prophesy for profit. Teach for shameful gain the things that they ought not to teach. And they're syncretistic to boot. Their theology is all messed up. And then the other one is this rebellion against God's established offices. And we see an example of this. Let me... um, point you to, I, we're, we're going to be in the epistle of Third John. You'll get a picture of what this looks like. Verse 5, I'll start at verse 5. Beloved, it is a faithful thing you do in all of your efforts. 
for these brothers, strangers as they are, who testified to your love before the church. You who dwell, who do well to send them on their journey in a manner worthy of God, for they have gone out for the sake of the name, accepting nothing from the Gentiles. Therefore, we ought to support people like these that we may fall, be fellow workers for the truth. I have written something to the church, but Diostrophes, who likes to put himself first, first does not acknowledge our authority. So if I come, I will bring up what he is doing, talking wicked nonsense against us. And not content with that, he refuses to welcome the brothers and also stops those who want to and puts them out of the church. What kind of a nut is this? Diostrophes does not recognize the authority of the Apostle John, the one who is the beloved disciple of Jesus. Okay? This is like Korah's Rebellion. So what does he do? He opposes the man in the office that Christ has set him up in. Same thing is happening, I would say, kind of in a larger setting within the evangelical churches right now, is that they've lost complete sight of the fact that the pastoral office is an office established by Christ. And they have set up a new authority structure, the vision-casting leader, who claims to have received a direct vision from God, and this is a man who gets results. He's not a shepherd. He's a cattle rancher. You're not sheep. You're being driven. Get along, little doggies. And so they've created their own authority and ecclesiastical structure within the church, and they oppose those who are in the real biblical office. It's Korah's rebellion played out in different ways. Does that make sense? So when we talk about false teachers in the church, you know, we... We can now go back to Jude and kind of button all of this up. And you've got the three main categories now of false teacher. And then let's see how Jude lands the plane, if you would. Woe to them, verse 11, they walk in the way of Cain. They abandon themselves for the sake of gain to Balaam's heir, perished in Korah's rebellion. These false teachers are hidden reefs at your love feasts as they feast with you without fear. Shepherds who feed only themselves, waterless clouds, swept along by winds, fruitless trees in late autumn, twice dead, uprooted, wild waves of the sea casting up the foam of their own shame. They are wandering stars. By the way, a wandering star you cannot navigate by. You have to navigate by a star that is fixed. That's why you know, mariners in the past navigated by the North Star. You can't navigate by a wandering star. That's another thing. You can tell somebody's a false teacher when their theology is all over the map and you can't figure out what they really believe, teach, and confess. And it seems to change from year to year as, as they stick their wind, finger into the winds to see which way the culture's blowing, they go along with it, right? Fruitless trees, twice dead. Wild waves, wandering stars for whom the gloom of utter darkness has been reserved forever. They've got a dwelling place saved for them. We've got your, we've got your reservation. We'll make things real toasty for you. It was also about these that Enoch, the seventh from Adam, prophesied, saying, Behold, the Lord comes with ten thousand of his holy ones to execute judgment on all and to convict all the ungodly of their deeds of ungodliness that they have committed in such an ungodly way. Which, by the way, is kind of a fascinating quote. The reason why is because this is not from a biblical text. This is taken from the book of Enoch. Two books worth reading, but you have to read them with a grain of salt that are not canonical. Book of Enoch... Fascinating read, Book of Jasher. Have you heard of the Book of Jasher? Book of Jasher is actually referenced twice in the Old Testament. One is in, uh, I want to say, 1 Samuel, and the other is in the Book of uh, Judges, I think chapter 10. The Book of Jasher is an extra-biblical book that claims, for the most part, to be a written account of the oral tradition of what was happening behind the scenes in the Book of Genesis. Of fascinating note, a little bit of a side note here, is the story of Noah. According to the book of Jasher, Noah did not want to get married. Scripture tells us that Noah did not get married until he was 400 years old. Okay, now keep in mind, people lived a lot longer back then. Okay, And his father, I think, I think Lamech is his name, Lamech was not exactly faithful to the Lord, which is the reason why he died young. And Methuselah, who's his grandfather, 
the two of them were the preachers. It wasn't just Noah. So when we read in Second Peter that, um, that Noah was a preacher of righteousness, he was co-preaching with his grandfather, Methuselah. And so Noah, because the days were so wicked and so evil, according to the book of Jasher, he did not want to get married. God intervened and said, no, Noah, you need to get married. So according to the book of Jasher, Noah marries one of the daughters of Enoch. And she was a hundred and something years older than him. Talk about robbing the cradle. They're not in the, they're not in the Apocrypha that uh, the Roman Catholics use. They're, they're considered extra-canonical works. And so when you read them, you'll see why they're not canonical. They're clear, there's clearly some errors as far as what's going on in them. But they, it's a fast, it, they do inform us on a few things. And it's fascinating here that Jude quotes Enoch. This, this account's found in the book of Enoch. And then the book of Jasher's referenced twice in the Old Testament which is fascinating. So it's, it, you can't trust it as like for biblical information, but it does kind of inform a few things. Does that make sense? Uh, well, it means it's not, it's, not, it's not considered inspired or inerrant. It doesn't have the, the, we can't say these are God's words. Okay, when something's canonical, we've, the church has basically said, we know that God, the Holy Spirit, is behind these words. And so when God speaks, we capture those words, we write them down, and they're binding for all people at all times. And something that isn't inerrant and inspired can be informative, but doesn't, we can't put it on the same level as Scripture. The works of Josephus kind of fall along these lines, too. If you've ever read uh, Josephus's Antiquities, absolutely fascinating read. And um, particularly of the account of Alexander the Great, did you know Alexander the Great did not sack Jerusalem? It's true. And there's a reason why Alexander the Great did not sack Jerusalem. The reason is simple is because they had the prophecies of Daniel regarding uh, Alexander the Great. Alexander the Great is prophesied by Daniel. And so when Alexander the Great shows up, the high priest goes out onto the battlefield and has a, has a meeting with Alexander the Great in his ephod, and basically says, we knew you were coming. Our prophets told us about you. And he read out the text, and, and Alexander the Great was so impressed he didn't destroy him. I mean, it's a fascinating story. It gives in some of the backstory, if you would, of what's going on at the time, but it's not biblical. These are not God's words. It's history. Does that make sense? All right. Boy, that was a funny bunny trail. I'm clearly distracted by historical things. <laughs> Squirrel! So. Okay. Let's go back to Jude. It was also about these that Enoch, the seventh from Adam, prophesied, saying, Behold, the Lord comes with ten thousand of his holy ones to execute judgment on all and to convict all the ungodly of their deeds of ungodliness that they have committed in such an ungodly way. And of all the harsh things that ungodly sinners have spoken against him. These are grumblers, malcontents, following their own sinful desires. They are loud mouth boasters showing favoritism to gain an advantage. You must remember, beloved, the predictions of the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ. They said to you in the last time there will be scoffers following their own ungodly passions. It is these who cause divisions. Did you catch that? Who causes the division in the body of Christ? It's not the faithful Orthodox teachers who are faithfully preaching Christ. It's these guys. You want to know why the church is so fragmented? It's real simple. Every fragment really is caused by false teachers. Oh, they sure do. It is these who cause divisions. They are worldly people, devoid of the Spirit. Even though they, oh, I had a dream. Scripture says they don't even have the Spirit. But you, beloved, build yourselves up in your most holy faith, praying in the Holy Spirit. Keep yourselves in the love of God, waiting for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ that leads to eternal life. And have mercy on those who doubt. Save others by snatching them out of the fire. To others show mercy with fear, hating even the garment stained by the flesh. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy to the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ, our Lord, be glory, 
majesty, dominion, and authority before all time, now and forever. Amen. So you see, we're all called to contend for this faith against those who are perverting it. It's not politically correct. But the question is, will you do what Christ is telling you to do through this text? Will you speak the truth? Will you rebuke those who are teaching false doctrine? Will you warn your neighbors against those who are listening to false teachers? Will you call them to repent and to be forgiven? Invite them to church to hear the good news of the gospel of Christ and to come join us as a little congregation of forgiven sinners. That's the idea. Because what's at stake? Men's eternal souls. The devil is a deceiver, and he has sent out his people into the church just as God has sent his people out. And you must learn to listen to the voice of God through his written word and to reject those who claim to be having a direct revelation from God. They're not. You see the point. We'll pick this up next week. So what'd you think? Love to get your feedback. If you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so. My email address is talkback at fightingforthefaith.com or you can subscribe on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian. Follow me on Twitter. My name there at pirate Christian. Till tomorrow, may God richly bless you in the grace and mercy won by Jesus Christ, his vicarious death on the cross for all of your sins. Amen.